Net-A-Porter presents The Incredible Women Podcast, Series 4, The Disruptors. Hello. How are you? So nice to meet you. Lovely to meet you too. Yes, it's very intimate. Love it. (laughs) Welcome to the new series of The Incredible Women Podcast. In this season, we talk intimately with the women challenging the status quo and campaigning for positive change. From rebels and mavericks to modern leaders, these are the inspiring women of today and tomorrow. I'm Alice Casely Hayford, and I'm delighted to be joined by Marine Tongi for this episode of our Disruptors podcast. Marine is a French art entrepreneur who founded MT Art, an award winning agency for up and coming artists worldwide, with two aims to advocate for the people behind the artworks and to make the art world more accessible. Providing a more supportive structure that's completely shaken up the traditional gallery model. MT Art covers studio costs and sells artworks, but also produces commercial and cultural partnerships for artists, giving them the very best opportunities for success. Let's meet Maureen. Well, this is particularly exciting for me because we're now series four of our podcast, but this is the first one that I've actually done in person. So it feels very exciting to have you live in front of me and to have a kind of even more intimate conversation. So thank you so much for joining us today. My total pleasure. To dive straight in, you disrupted the art world when you yeah. launched MT Art Agency in 2015. For those of our listeners that don't know exactly what it is, do you mind just giving us a, a summary? Totally. To give you a bit of background, I have been in the sector for 13 years now. I was a young Gary manager of Steve Lazaridis who discovered Banksy NJR when I was 21. And then I was approached by an investor, I'm making it super concise, uh, to open my own, my own gallery two years later from that. So I moved from London to Los Angeles to open it. And I think the sector, therefore, all that it taught me was selling artworks on walls. And and that was the way you were building up the relationship of an artist and, and kind of reputation as well. And, and you were establishing their names. Um, and Los Angeles completely disrupted my brain. I think that's kind of the right term for today, um, where suddenly I encountered all the top talent agencies, and especially Michael Levitz, who built CIA, who became a mentor. And those people were building reputations. They were using the talents as, you know, not just what they were producing, but they were weaving their storytelling, building their storytelling on, on the mainstream level and and inspiring very large audiences on the back of it. And I just felt that's what I want to do because I feel first that my artists deserve to inspire much larger audiences than what they do. Um, but also I feel they belong to the mainstream. They don't actually belong just purely to the art world. So it felt like the right thing to therefore build the first talent agency in the sector. I know it doesn't sound disruptive when you're not in it, but it was deeply disruptive it for the sector. It sounds incredibly disruptive. <laughs> and, and six years later, I think it's that's the magic of it, is that it feels quite surreal, I think, to have gone from the madness of it all um, to now the, the, very, the, the tangibility of having built this and therefore to be incredibly protective, responsible, and thorough in making sure it happens. So, um, yeah, it really um, an incredible journey to kind of got to here. Absolutely. So going back to the beginning of that journey and you starting off very young in this pretty male-dominated space, how did you find navigating it initially? I think I was lucky that um, I'm definitely a doer. Um, I, if I shake your hand and say I'll do it, I turn up and do it, and I worry later. Um, I think this kind of personality means that, like, while you may feel insecure, while you may be feeling all sorts of things, in fact, 
you you make things happen. And I think every time I saw an opportunity, I seized it and and turned up to it and and did it. It didn't mean that like a duck, you didn't feel deeply horrified inside, but it did mean that therefore, yes, CV wise, I had already six seven years experience into my sector before building the company. So, um, and in a very weird way, I was lucky men wise because. It's not like I didn't, I wasn't aware of my gender. Obviously, I feel very feminine and I'm a woman, but it's more, I've had so many male mentors, I never felt they were treating me differently. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in fact, I thought I was a Michael of its female. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never kind of thought he was a man. I just thought he was an incredibly achieved business person passing on knowledge. It's only, in fact, in early 30s and seeing all my girlfriends going into motherhood and quitting their careers that I think my gender really kind of became more tangible mm-hmm. because I think before this I'd never quite realized it was such a gap and I think I've been re- realizing it much more recently than back then so very lucky because I felt they were treating me um, on a similar ground. Well that is very good to hear but um, to go back to the very kind of starting point of this podcast what does disruption mean to you and do you actually see yourself as a disruptor? I didn't realize I was first a disruptor because I think for me, I was just more uncompromising. I had, um, you know, I think I had strong values for the sector. I wanted to be, I think, socially driven in a sector that is less known as such. And um, I didn't want to compromise in the execution of the vision I wanted to build. And that became a disruption because I think most people were worried about how the art world was doing things and tend to respond similar in the fashion world on how people do things and tend to want to please. I think I'm lucky that I'm born in a way that I don't need to please, I want respect and I also don't compromise easily on values. In fact, I don't compromise at all on values. (laughs) I think I compromise a lot more on execution. Um, And I think that made me a disruptor by accident because in in a sense... I wanted those values to come to life and I wanted that vision to come to life. If that meant that I had to disrupt or change or challenge, then I was willing to do it because I generally believed it was the correct thing to do this, to kind of see that execution. Um, so I think, therefore, disruption for me is it's less about the aggressivity of the word of punching in the face someone's mm-hmm. sectors. It's more really, I think right now our world is changing and I think, you know, we are seeing... Um, a shift in what people value and a shift in the vision that they want to see coming to life and and that does mean at times that the conversation is um, is shifting to seeing this kind of new businesses rising um, I would like disruption to respect what was built before um, but I, I'm sure it does create for very tense conversation I mean realistically the first few years of us we were not adored in the sector like you can never be adored when you disrupt but I don't see it as aggressive I see it as a shift and I say it as a much needed shift. I think you should be disrupting if you really believe this is necessary for a sector more than just aggressive, being aggressive for the sake of it. I also love that reverence for the past while you're also trying to drive things forward. And speaking of kind of being socially driven and supporting all of these amazing artists... How have you been able to scale your business, grow it so rapidly? You're talking about this incredible expansion later this year. How have you done that all in just seven years? It's funny because I think at the heart, I'm still a five years old playing Legos. And I think (laughs) I see the same thing with my son, where you're just like building the foundation of your house in Legos and then just piling on the Legos on top of it. Um, How I think the big how is always surrounding 
yourself with people who've got great advice. Realistically, I know very little about um, how to scale a business, but I'm lucky that every time I have a question and I'm faced with a difficult reality or I'm faced with a challenge, I can ask someone mm -hmm. who has luckily done it before or has access to that expertise. So I think what I'm really good at, I think, is building a network and building a community of people. And then I go and reach for that advice and then I listen to it. Um, it does feel crazy. I think the first time you get told that, you know, the valuation of your business is in crazy numbers, I think it's something that feels very shocking. Mm -hmm. Um, but, I, but I do see how we could get there. But there's a lot of work involved, obviously. Of course. <laughs> now, you've mentioned um, an incredible network of collaborators and people who've taught you lots, but evidently you've done a lot of amazing things yourself and made some great decisions. But that said, is there anything that you'd wish you'd known when you first started out that you know now? I'm always saying no. The reason why is because I, so I could not have done what my 25 years old did mm -hmm. uh, because, as you know yourself, like there's a time in life where I was fearless because I had, you know, I was broke on the sofa bed. I didn't have kids. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a relationship. I had literally nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. um, and I could be at my best in terms of taking risk in a way that I, I couldn't be now because I'm much more protective. I'm also much more moderated because it comes also with, a, with an age and with an understanding empathy wise that everyone has a different situation so I generally don't want to give her everything I think sadly she did go for the very hardcore way to do things and I think <laughs> it was very painful to watch I'm sure for anyone around but I'm glad it's behind me yeah. um, I'm just now making sure that uh, we're building on top of it mm -hmm. And the skill set that I have as a woman now is to totally opposite to that young girl because in the in the in the way I'm going to be listening, in the way I'm going to be hiring and building and protective, that's the reason why we are going to get there, which is almost the opposite to an uncompromising uh, 25 years old. <laughs> yes. So I think I have to almost unlearn everything that God was there mm -hmm. um, to make sure that we get to the next step. Well, it sounds like you're really opening up the art world for a broader community, I guess, because it can be seen as quite elitist and impenetrable. Can you tell us a bit more about what you're trying to do in order to diversify it and open it up to new audiences? Totally. There's a lot to do. Uh, there's many bullet points that I will be able to line up for this. I think, first of all, over 90% of people in my sector have inherited wealth. So there's nothing wrong, obviously, with inheriting wealth whatsoever. But it does mean that who builds businesses in it, who gets to be a practicing artist or art professional, therefore is usually someone from a certain socioeconomical background. And Gosh, that's, that is a staggering figure. I didn't know mad. it was that high. Wow. Well, it's because... Well, if you think about it, £10,000 a year is your art school mm -hmm. and doesn't cost doesn't count the living costs. Yeah. Plus, you then need to tell your parents that you're unlikely to earn anything for a long time. So I think that you can imagine that your even your middle class is not delighted no, that you exactly. will go and do this. And then I think most of, you know, up to three quarter businesses are not profitable in, in the sector, which mm -hmm. also means that like you're building something that could be at loss. So only a certain type of people is going to be able to be thinking that's a great idea. I'm going to do this. So that's in a weird way why economics are um, what can change things because the fact that our business model is profitable mm -hmm. means that more people can start from scratch and build things up. Mm -hmm. It also means that more art professionals can be paid better. Mm -hmm. And so that starts from paying interns very well to paying your people very well to um, encouraging promotions. And, you know, I'm sure the fact that, you know, we are women-led also changes who gets to do what in terms of the decision-making. But it's also in terms of your artists where there's a strong philosophy in this country on art for art sex. This is the idea that anything that is pure art should not be relating to money, which also means that artists are 
scared and petrified to be negotiating any form of fees for what they're doing. So it's it's changing at the heart that the the economics and and therefore the finances um, is a change here. An artist that gets paid into anything that they do means that anyone can become an artist. If suddenly most of what you do needs to be for free, whether it's public art, charitable work, or anything like this, which is still being asked out of artists or illustrations or anything that it means that only a certain type of people can work for free. And I mean, but us, that's why we always, and we are a big hope for that matter, we always use the the vehicle of, of like the money vehicle as as um, as as one way to change things. Um, ironically, we became therefore very early on a very diverse company because by the second, money is not a barrier and and the language is more accessible. Ultimately, more people from different backgrounds and social clinical backgrounds can join. Mm-hmm. And I think it does magic because then you have a diversity of ideas, um, your company grow faster. Mm-hmm. So I think even improving that in a, a business scale faster because there's a different types of people in it shows that ultimately it's very positive. So there's a lot to do. Audiences wise, I can't wait for people to be as excited about an artist that they are about a footballer because then <laughs> I will have, I'll be like, finally. Um, so there's a lot of, lot of work to do. It's, it will take a very long time. But speaking about all of the work that needs to be done, the pandemic certainly hit the arts, you know, harder than many other industries. What more can we do as maybe art enthusiasts just to support the industry as a whole? So I think ironically for us, the pandemic accelerated us because in a way, um, of course, putting aside the museums, we've had a hard times with the pandemic. I think it also it kind of reshuffled the the traditional hierarchy, which which there's there are positive to that. I would say in terms of what everyone can do on a daily basis, we came up with a concept called visual diet. It's the idea that the the visuals you see every day shape you. So what you've been from the moment you woke up to our conversation now, everything you've been looking at on your phone, advertising, on the streets, everywhere, you are digesting basically hundreds of hundreds of visuals. And that's going to make you a person. So you're going to want to consume things a certain way. You're going to want to look a certain way because of all those visuals. So I'm, I'm begging for awareness that you are in a visual world. Like 82% of your brain, communication-wise, goes through visuals. So just first being aware of this means that you need to care for what visuals are put everywhere. Mm-hmm. And that could be creating your visual diet online that could be in endorsing or empowering people that are creating visual content that you think should be seen at a larger scale and so even a follow or a like on Instagram can go a long way for that matter it could also be you know thinking of art less as expensive artworks but more those people are you know telling a visual story of our times mm-hmm. and so by me again endorsing the artist and they can represent my time or my generation and that really matters because you want that to be as diversified as possible. So I just, I think at that point, I'm begging for caring because by the second people realize the impact um, that the sector has on them, um, that I think change can happen much faster. You also do a lot of work in terms of brand collaborations with your artists. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, I think, um, well, very similar to any other talent sector. So again, I think the visuals are here, the vehicle. And I think the visuals can weave themselves to the streets of a city. So right now, if you come out of the studio, we have over 20 public art projects that you can see in the streets of London. But the visuals can also weave themselves through a campaign of a brand or also 
um, on, online or like a retail activation. So they are they are very much a visual storytelling. Um, most recently, we've therefore um, had collaboration with uh, Gucci. We've also done a very cool um, project and activation with Bumble doing FIAC, especially highlighting actually the fact that um, very few women were represented during a key time in, in the art world. Um, but we're constantly, I would hope, educating, inspiring, provoking brands. And what I think it's amazing with brands, and you would know that as well as Renata Porter, is that they're changing. Like the creative directors and the teams are realizing how key artists are and not just as a decorative wallpaper, but actually as, as cultural influencers who have a strong vision, who have a strong storytelling and ultimately can really, truly add value to the brand. Um, and I've seen that shift over the past few years and that also makes me very happy. You speak obviously so passionately about your industry and about your incredible work. When did you first fall in love with art? So I um, didn't see an artwork until I was 18. Uh, oh, wow. So I know it was quite late in. Um, so I grew up on a tiny island called Ile de Ré off the west coast of France, um, which is known by many Parisians as the place to be in the summer. Mm-hmm. When you grew up there, there are, there's one bus at 5 a.m. to go to your high school, which is on the mainland every morning. If you miss it, you have to cycle there, which is an hour and a half. Oh, my gosh. So I used to be way fitter. Um, <laughs> it's the answer. Um, but I was educated, therefore, surrounded by beauty. Mm-hmm. I think it's a beautiful place to grow up in. I mean, there's not much just to do but it's very beautiful and and I think that education again going back to a visual diet is that the education being surrounded by something that's so beautiful gives you the appreciation of how necessary it is and it's not superficial so if I feel crap on a certain day going for a walk or going to see something beautiful or reassembling the room around me to make it visually appealing can just put me um, in a much better mood. Mm. Um, So I think my background gave me a toolkit. It gave me the toolkit that like visuals mattered and they, they were your the daily approach you could have to life and that and they can make life much easier and the first artwork I ever saw was at Le Louvre um, which is a cliche not for a bad a French place person. to start I know exactly <laughs> such a cliche for a French person and I saw the work of Guérico which maybe you would know is called The Wrath of the Medusa What's really interesting, knowing me now, is actually it's one of the most political work you can see at Le Louvre because it's one of the stories where um, this it was a shipwreck, but they basically sent out the poor people on the raft and they ended up eating each other. It's a horrible story. It was all everywhere on the papers and the rich basically got back safe. But I think I was triggered with how strong that storytelling was. I think the fact that I could just spend... Um, so long in front of it and emotionally being very triggered um, and I would want to read more about it and in a weird way knowing now myself I just feel like this encapsulates so much of what I think the power of visual story storytelling is and I still have this impression from it. Well you've spoken about your kind of very first art experience can you tell us a bit about the artists that are exciting you today? I mean, I'm biased at that stage. So many. <laughs> of course, of course. For London, Camille Wallala, I think, is a great one. I think, again, Camille, you know, she's saying that joy is essential. Mm-hmm. Also, it's one thing to remember for anyone who hasn't seen Camille, she's covering the streets of London with the most joyful, colourful. Uh, it's like Nikki de Saint-Fal meets the 1960s, meets, again, like Camille, joyful colours. So it's a, it's a real, it's incredible to have her everywhere. It's incredible for us to have signed her. Um, 
I think it's also incredible because street art wise, you probably have 3% of female who actually are street artists. Um, And the fact that she's now becoming such a strong profile is amazing. So I'm really happy. I was shaking while signing her in the studio because I so wanted her. And I had like geeked away and read all the articles about her. So I'm really excited about Camille. Um, I mean, most recently we signed Lorenzo Queen, which you probably know because it was a... At the Venice Biennale a few years ago, you had the two hands. I mean, again, I was shaking, but he couldn't see it, luckily, because I was on Zoom. So <laughs> Camille definitely could see it. Um, but that was a big sign for us. And and what I'm super excited for Lorenzo as well is um, he is developing a series of sustainable materials that are very fascinating, from like ocean waste that recycle ocean waste that literally looks so polished. Like some of the projects I'm working on, um, with him are utterly fascinating. Well, it's lovely to hear how moved you still get kind of signing a new artist and, totally. you know, shaking and feeling kind of, you know, so passionately about it. It's wonderful. Um, you mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation about some of the kind of mentors or people early on in your career who shaped, not shaped you, but guided you. Um, are you able to elaborate on any others? Totally. People who shaped me recently, um, is I'm lucky that I grew up with so many women who grew to be really successful. Mm-hmm. So I was in the same Derek Lick Hospital co-working space in Camden than Anne-Marie Maffadon, who built the Steamettes. Um, and, you know, on a daily basis, June Angelides, a dear friend of mine, is also the same. And we all grew up together. Um, and I think that's probably what makes me the happiest on a daily basis is we all started quite broke and quite hopeful. And then I get to see the companies of my girlfriends having literally boomed. Mm-hmm. And I think that had a huge impact, not only on my confidence, but on my mental health, mm-hmm. because I think it's nothing that you get so happy to see that this is happening and this can happen. So I think my peers were actually a strong influence. Mm-hmm. I think the rest, like the, my male mentors and, and my female mentors were older, tends to be the wisdom. They tend to be more, be careful about this. But my peers are very much the one that gives me tons of energy because mm-hmm. um, I get so happy every time I see them um, achieving. You just mentioned your mental health and um, art can be so many things. It can be cathartic, it can be escapist, it can be so multifaceted and incredible but how else aside from art do you escape or find comfort very luckily um i stumbled upon the right guy for me very early in life um and i said luckily because i was totally not interested in dating when i stumbled upon him um so i think i am at the stage in my life where you know i have a relationship with someone i love i therefore have a family and we have a little baby together um and and I have very strong, a strong group of girlfriends mm-hmm. and my workplace. I think, again, that, that lucky factor for me is that I have been able to keep my friendships and my relationship while working very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I say this is lucky because I'm sure at times, you know, my friends had to be quite patient and I'm sure Will had to be quite patient as well because uh, the early years of an entrepreneur are definitely not very glamorous. Um, but it does mean that mental health-wise, um, I'm lucky that I have different parts of my life. Mm-hmm. And um, and if I have an issue in one of them, it's never the end of the world mm-hmm. because the other one picks it up. And my work can pick me up many times, you know. Sometimes um, when Atlas decides to do a tantrum, my son, then sometimes it's empty out what gives me the good news and actually pick me up from it. But I think that's what my mental health rests on, is it rests on the appreciation that I have so many parts of my life that are very meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um but therefore, yes, my relationship is a strong part of it. I think we have both been building companies at the same time. Um, 
and the fact that I can be loved and appreciated outside of my workplace matters in the same way that therefore it can you know I can bring back more energy into my professional life so super happy this could be the case um, it's a very intense juggle of energy every day if you want to keep all of this but I would not have it any other way because I'm therefore a much happier person for the, for that I'm seven months into motherhood oh. I've just gone back to work so um, yeah I'm still navigating that but it's really wonderful to hear you speak candidly about it and the realities of it, but totally. also the joys of it, of course. I, I haven't seen anything meaningful that hasn't come from basically giving a lot in. Um, so I'm yet to see something meaningful that has come because it was easy. Uh, I think everything that's meaningful usually comes because it's hard. Mm-hmm. But therefore, I'm so glad that at times, you know, after a really tough day at work, um, I still went for that drink at 9 p.m. with my girlfriends mm-hmm. because it's um, it's exactly what you say. It's, at times you say to them, look, I really can't see you because mm-hmm. I'm on my knees. But at other times you pull yourself in and you still go because two months later when you need them, then they are here and they're all coming to kind of cheer you on. And, and those friendships are really essential. Moving away from parenting and navigating work, going back to art and all of the amazing kind of emerging rising stars that you you spot how how do you seek them out how do you find them I think successful people actually have a common thread um, it's usually one of resilience drive passion and determination um, what's really tough is actually you can spot someone that's about to be successful in two seconds um, that's the reality because they walk into a certain way into the room not with any arrogance mm-hmm. But you can see that whatever they say to you is going to happen. If you're part of it, great. If you're not part of it, they will still be making it happen. Mm-hmm. And that's a quiet confidence that comes from the fact that they are committed. They're the committing type. They're basically telling you, doesn't matter the number of challenges that will be thrown at me, I will get it done. Mm-hmm. Um, and you encounter these talents every now and then. Um, and then you have major FOMO because you're just like, unless I'm part of that journey, they can be incredible. All of them are talented, of course, because um, otherwise it wouldn't work if you didn't have the talent. But but that resilience is something that I've come to appreciate, and that is really what makes someone successful to very successful. Mm-hmm. You know, we've launched 800 meters of very large public art projects from the Eiffel Tower and the Sean Mars Um of a biodegradable painting with SAPE. So I've had so many of those moments where you're holding hand and you're like, this was really hard. But you you came to see the result of it. Um, and that's the artist I look for. Mm-hmm. I think being staying committed in a world that is making it hard for you, mm-hmm. it's a very tough skill. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's actually what's the most valuable one. For young, or not even yet artists, some graduates or people who haven't necessarily even taken a traditional education um, into the art world, what would be your advice, apart from resilience, perhaps, in order to get a foot in or just to crack it? Basically, you need a lot of people to battle for you at the start, mm-hmm. uh, especially to make um, a name for yourself. First of all, never take that for granted and be incredibly grateful at any given person that's giving you a hand, doesn't matter how small it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but second is therefore to show those people that they were right to believe in you and that you understand the commitment they took. So much of it is management of relationship at the start because mm-hmm. no one is expecting you. So you need to, ma- to build that little community of people that would say, that person needs to be successful. Mm-hmm. We want that person to succeed. That's your foundations, basically, mm-hmm. on the Lego part. Um, and unless you have that, it's going to be very hard. And how else would you like to see the art world continue to evolve? 
I mean, there's so much. Personally, I'm excited because the the that world is transitioning. You know, you've seen it with NFTs last year, but ultimately new audiences are coming in, new type of collaborations. Like, it's really opening up. And I, I think the next 10 years in terms of who will lead it, um, it's going to be totally different. And I think if you compare to Neta Porter, therefore, I think the shift to the digital and, and how new businesses led in fashion is what we're going through now. In our sector, we tend to always be a, be bit, a bit late. Bit <laughs> yes, we tend to always be because we're very traditional. But therefore, I'm actually really positive about it. Um, doesn't mean that shifts are easy. It doesn't mean that everyone will be very comfortable with it. Um, but the shift coming from, is coming from all angles. Um, and and uh, for being deep in it for a long time, I can't wait to watch it, take part in it, help shaping it, hopefully, hopefully for the best. Um, so I have only excitement at this stage. Well, it sounds like an incredible shift is upon us and much yes. needed. And I look forward to seeing how it develops too. I guess for our very last question, I have to ask you, who are your disruptors of 2022? Or is there an individual or a collective of people who are trailblazing and inspiring you today? I think... Um you know, June Angelidis, who, um, who's earned an MBA for her work as an investor, but also um, she's still, uh, she's investing on behalf of Samus. I think what I'm very excited is suddenly you have a type of women who are leading the investment and the, the business world. Um, and I think they're not only going to be shifting um, who is at the top of the investment world, but they will be leading who is building company tomorrow, who are who are going to be building companies tomorrow, and therefore who are we going to be employing tomorrow. So I think the the changes in their camps, um, and not to put too much pressure on doing who adore, <laughs> but I think I've never seen so many female funders. I've never seen a scene that's so exciting. Um, if I was an investor, which I'm on, on a tiny level, I would literally be investing right, left and centre on women right now. Um, so I think the investment world is going to be the one um, where a lot of disruptors will come from. And they need to because it's about time. But I think, therefore, June is is on the on the curse to, you know, to basically be a new type of investors um, and hopefully to be making a better decision. Well, that is a very positive and exciting note to, to end on. Thank you, Maureen, so much for your Total time. Pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. And thank you for disrupting the art world so Total wonderfully. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. The Disruptors was brought to you by Netta Porte and Chalk and Blade, hosted by Netta Porte's content director, Alice Casely Hayford, and fashion director, Kay Barron, produced by Rosie Stouffer. The team at Netaporte was Katie Barrington as the senior editor, with casting by Annabelle Brog and Olivia Wakefield, and coordination by Erin Shanahan. The senior producer at Chalk and Blade was Laura Hyde, and the executive producer was Ruth Barnes. Original music and mixes were by Alexis Adimora. Enter the code DISRUPTORS at the checkout for 10% off your first Netaporte order. T's and C's and exclusions apply. To make sure you hear all the episodes, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information, go to netaporte.com. <laughs>